Well, we are here in the crypt at Hope with Bill and Chris, and we are going to be looking at number two in Bible with Bill, which is very exciting. Last time we looked at clearing of the temple, Bill looked at clearing of the temple, rooting it in the Old Testament, particularly the prophets like Jeremiah. And this time he will be looking at the land and again how uh, we can read some of those Old Testament texts about the land through the new the lens of the New Testament. So what is really exciting about this series is whatever topic or subject Bill picks, or, and I'll come to another thought in a minute, we Bill will be teaching us how to read the Bible. So Bill is particularly requested, and I think he's going to say this himself, that if anyone has any passages or questions or topics they would like him to address, um, he would be very happy to hear that and address them. You can find these, there will be the slides attached, so this is obviously YouTube, but also um, through the Hope website, the slides will be attached as well as listening to the podcast. So, Bill, very exciting to have you here. Over to oh, you. It's exciting to be here, Alice. Thank you very much. Um, hello, faithful podcast listeners and viewers. Um, uh, lovely to be here. I'm with Chris and Alice once again in the crypt this time, which is a lovely space. Slightly echoey, but that's all right. Um, uh, thank you for all the feedback on the first one, which was very encouraging. I'm glad so many of you got so much out of it. Um, as, as Alice said, um, one thing I, I want uh, this to be is uh, I'd like it to be answering the questions that you have. So if you do have any requests, uh, are there any particular books in the Bible or passages or uh, topics or questions or basically I can be your jukebox. Um, you know, if, if you have a request, then, you know, I, I will, you know, point me in that direction and I will spout on it. So um, what are you interested to hear future podcasts on? Um, as Alice said uh, last time, we were looking at how the Old Testament can help us interpret the New. Um, last time it was a very detailed view. It was how these two particular Old Testament quotes, once you really understood them, how they made sense of the story of the, the clearing of the temple. But, but the, they were, that was a very detailed, narrow look at a couple of Old Testament passages. Uh, this time we're doing the same thing, but going the other way. We're looking at the whole sweep of the Old Testament, um, the, the Old Testament's uh, worldview, if you like, and understanding how that can help us make sense of the, the New Testament. Um, and where it comes from is this. I don't know if you um, heard me give a talk a few weeks ago about money in the, in the money series. Um, and, and when I did, I, I used a picture um, and it's this picture, which I think Chris is putting up now, this, this kind of triangular view of uh, three dimensions, the, the three relationships in our lives and how they related to one another. So our relationship with God, our relationship with people and our relationship with, with money um, or our stuff, our resources. And, and I used that picture in order to break down a, a biblical view of how we should um, deal with money in our lives. But I think I mentioned at the time that, that that picture is an Old Testament picture. That's where it comes from. In fact, I got it from this, this book, which I heartily recommend, Christopher Wright, um, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God, which is a really, really good book. So I, I nicked that that um, that picture from from this book, and I, I think I said at the time that um, I might, if people were interested, I might um, explore a bit more where that comes from. Um, and so that's why this morning, what I'm looking at is the subject of land in the Old Testament. Um, that's the, the the thing we're looking at. But so we're, we're exploring the theme land, but across the whole sweep of the, the Old Testament. Um, there's a health warning, which is it's a really big subject and it's um, it's complex. It's a, a big theme. And I'm going to try and do it justice in 45 minutes or so. Um, what that means is we're going to be scratching the surface um, 
But what I want to do is give you a taster and an understanding of how the theme of the land, how it works in the Old Testament. Um, and so what, what I'm going to do is, is uh, take a brief overview to begin with, a really quick overview of the land in the Old Testament story, but then dive into one particular question, one particular aspect, in order to kind of give you a taste of how this theme works. Um, and then finally, I'm going to ask the question, what about us? You know, is this just a kind of academic Old Testament biblical study or does it actually have relevance for, for our lives today? Um, so to begin with, um, an overview of the land in the Old Testament. Um, our problem is that Christianity is a universal religion. Um, it's not tied to any particular nation or people or territory. We, we don't have a holy land or a holy mountain or a holy city. We, we just don't think that way. We assume that everything applies to everyone. And that's true. That, that is true of Christianity. Um, but the trouble is when, when we bring that mindset to the Old Testament... Um, it's easy to see the land in the Old Testament as just like the scenery in a play. It's just the setting in which the action takes place. Um, and what we miss is that the scenery, the land in the Old Testament, is an essential part of the plot. It's a key part of the story. Um, it's almost a character in its own right in the Old Testament story. But we... It's easy, it's, it's funny how we can miss that unless it's brought to our attention. Um, so that's what I want to do this morning. Um, to give you a quote from Chris Wright from the, this book, um, he says on page 98, in fact I can't read it because I haven't got a copy of the slide. So what I will do is I'll quote it from the book itself. Christopher Wright says... Um, Actually, this is why I needed the slides printed out, <laughs> Chris. But it's all right, we'll, we'll muddle through. Um, Chris Wright says, um, Indeed, the history of Israel in the Old Testament is the story of the land, its promise, its gift, abuse, loss, and recovery. Um, so how does that work? Well, to begin with, think, think back to the, the very beginning of the story of Israel. I would argue that the, the starting point for the story of, of the nation of Israel happens in Genesis 12, or it's kind of spread between Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. But in, in those three places, God makes a promise. He, makes a, he, he chooses one man, Abraham, and he makes Abraham a big, big promise. Um, and the, the promise is that uh, he's chosen Abraham and he's going to bless him. And he's going to bless him by making him a nation. And how is he going to make him a nation? He's going to do two things. He's going to give him a vast number of descendants, an enormous number of offsprings. He's going to have family after family descended from him. And he's going to have a land. He's going to be given a land. So the a key component of the, if you like, the starting blocks for the Old Testament story is this promise, which includes a promise of the land. Now, that, that promise to Abraham is mentioned 46 times in the first seven books of the Bible. So from Genesis to Judges, there are 46 references to that promise to Abraham. In those 46 references, land is only not mentioned seven times. So 39 times out of those 46, the vast majority of times, the and, and the, sometimes the promise is seen as synonymous with the promise of the land. It's just referred to as the promise of the land. So that's where the story starts. Uh, 450 years later, um, the descendants of Abraham are in slavery in Egypt and God remembers his promise. I mean, it's quite funny how it, it suggests God wakes up one morning and says, oh, yes, wasn't there something about uh, what did I say to Abraham? 
Anyway, God remembers his promise. And he repeats it. This time, he appears to Moses. Um, he appears um, as a burning bush in, in Exodus 3. And he repeats the promise. Um, and this is, this is how he says it. And this time I can't see it. So maybe Chris can read it out. This is, sure. <laughs> we'll, we'll organise this better for podcast three. But here we go. So Exodus 3, 7 to 8. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. So I have come down to rescue them from the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Thank you, Chris. So um, it, it's like the story got stuck in in Egypt but this is like a reboot God shows up and he kind of reiterates the promise this time to Moses but once again the promise includes this promise of a land a land this time a land flowing with milk and honey and it's that promise at the start of the book of Exodus that drives the whole story of of the Exodus it, it creates this question this tension how is this going to be resolved how is God going to free his people from slavery? But also, how is he going to give them this land? Um, let's move on a bit. Uh, God frees them from slavery and they end up at Mount Sinai. And, and God begins to give them the law. And over the next four books, three and a half books of, of the, the Torah, um, God lays out his instruction for this people that are now his people. They've been redeemed from slavery. And so he instructs them on how to live. And if, if you look at the law and how it's laid out in, in the second half of Exodus, in Leviticus, and, in, and it's repeated in Deuteronomy, uh, you see that the, the law has three main areas of concern. The laws govern three areas of Israel's life. And those areas are... Their relationship with God, there are lots of laws about how they're supposed to worship, how they're supposed to behave with God. There are lots of laws about how they deal with one another as a society, how they, the, um, how people and neighbours should treat each other. But then the third area is how Israel should uh, use and treat and deal with its land. Now, out of those three areas... Um, laws concerning God and worship, laws concerning society and people, and laws concerning land. Which do you think is the most comprehensive? Would it surprise you to learn that the most comprehensive set of laws are all about the land? Um, and they, they go on and on. Um, Christopher Wright says that the law is earthy. The law is earthy. It's got its hands dirty. It's, it's kind of in the mud. It's interested in the nitty-gritty of, of the land and farming and agriculture. Um, and the laws govern things like the use of the land, things like fallow years and jubilee years and how they harvest. Um, they govern ownership of the land. There are very strict laws that you couldn't just buy and sell this land. It had to be passed down within families. There are laws about neighbours and how you dealt with your, your land and your neighbour's land. And laws against moving boundary stones. Um, there are laws about tithes and offerings and what you do with the harvest. And a key part of it is uh, concern for the poor. How you use your land with reference to those who are in need, those who are um, the, the poor, the fatherless and the widow, or, or aliens among you. Um, and so as you as you use the land, as you as you farm, as you harvest, as you make use of your harvest, you should always bear in mind a concern for those who are on the margins of society. So the law, a huge chunk of the Old Testament, is very concerned with the land. Uh, we then move on to the history books. So the hi history books start with the book of Joshua. And at the beginning of the book of Joshua, uh, the people of Israel cross the river Jordan and finally enter this land. So the promise, remember that promise to Abraham and to Moses is now fulfilled and they all live happily ever after. Because nothing ever goes wrong with the land again, does it? Of course not. That's, that's not how it works. Um, 
the plot of the histories, the history books from Joshua through Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, all the way through to Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the story is the story of the land. Um, in, in the early histories, they, they enter the land, but are they going to take it? Are they, are they going to be able to survive in this land? Um, and it's, it's slow, painful, frustrating progress as they, um, again and again, they try and take a bit more land from the Canaanites, the people who were there before. And is it going to work or isn't it going to work? Um, later on, it becomes threats from other names, from the, particularly from the Philistines. If you read the story of, of Saul and David in, in 1 and 2 Samuel, it's all about can they hold on to this land? Can they survive in the land? And then there's a kind of middle period for a few brief decades um, in 2 Samuel and the, and the beginning of 1 Kings, in the reigns of David and, and his son Solomon, where Israel's occupation of the land is at its fullest extent. And for a few brief decades, everything is good. Um, and, and the nation is an impressive nation. And, and um, other nations want to come and see w- what's the secret of their success. Why are they so prosperous? Why are they this, this, this great nation in this great land? But then we, we know how it all goes wrong. As soon as, or even in Solomon's reign, but then particularly uh, with Solomon's son, um, the nation divides. It splits into the northern and the southern kingdoms. There's division. You have a succession of bad kings um, as you go on through one kings and into two kings. Um, and the, the looming threat is of exile. Um, the, the looming question is, can we so can we remain in this land or are we going to lose it and we know what happens first of all the northern kingdom uh goes into exile to assyria and then the southern kingdom judah is exiled to babylon but even then at the end of the histories you have books like ezra and nehemiah and the question of those books is still about the land it's the the question is now is return possible is it possible to recover this land that we've now lost? So you see all the way through the histories from Joshua through to Ezra and Nehemiah, the, 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 the question, the plot is all about the land. Okay, well, what about the prophets? Um, the writing prophets from Isaiah through to Malachi, the major prophets, the minor prophets. What are they writing about? What are they speaking about? as God is speaking through them, what's their message about? The, 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 almost the only concern of the prophets is exile. The, they, the, prophet, the writing prophets, they, they speak to Israel during a very narrow historical period. And that historical period is the time leading up to the exile and then during the exile and then after the exile. And, and God's messages are to begin with, warning them of the, the danger of exile, then announcing judge, the judgment that exile is going to happen. And then as soon as they are exiled, God speaks to them to encourage them, to give them hope, to say, this isn't the end. Um, you will return uh, to the land. But all of the, the, the prophet's concern is about exile. And therefore, what they're also talking about is this continuing story of the land. So so as Chris Wright says, and I'll put the slide up again uh, if you move on to the next one, Chris. uh, I'll just remind you of of that quote. he's, He's saying that the story of Israel, the history of Israel, is the story of the land. What does he say? It's promise, it's gift, it's abuse, it's loss, and it's recovery. It's true, but we tend not to see it until it's pointed out that the plot of the Old Testament is interwoven with this question about the land. So um, that is a very quick, an overview of the land in the Old Testament in a nutshell. Um, But as I said before, the the trouble is this is a very complex, um, rich 
deep layered theme. Um, you can look at it from all sorts of different angles and pick out different things. Um, and so, as I said before, what, what I want to do now is just pick one particular question, one particular um, point of view or, or area and, and explore it in a bit more detail just to give you a, a flavour of how this theme of the land in the Old Testament works. Um, so if you can have the next slide, which I think is the, the triangular picture again. Um, a key thing to understand about this, this, this picture, this, this model, which, which represents the worldview of the Old Testament. Um, if you take a, a typical reader of the Old Testament, this is how they, they view their world. They have these three relationships, their relationship to God, their relationship to their neighbour, and their relationship to the land. And, um, but but a, a key part of that is the understanding that these, these three dimensions are interrelated. They all affect each other. They, they work together. These are not three independent uh, aspects of life. They're all part of the same picture, and they affect one another. So what I want to do is take just the right-hand side of that picture, which is the next slide, Chris. It should be a vertical line. Um, so we've got God. So, so what, I, what I want to explore in more detail is the relationship between um, how an Israelite relates to God and how they relate to the land and the way those, those two dimensions work together. Um, basically, the idea is that your relationship with God will affect your relationship with the land, will, will permeate, permeate be, be interconnected with your relationship with the land, and vice versa. Your relationship with the land will feed, will, will affect your relationship with God. Um, and what I want to do is, is just look at that dimension and explore how it works, um, show the, the ways in which this connection works. Um, at the heart of the understanding of how God and the land are connected in the life of an Old Testament reader, a, an Israelite, is this understanding of gift. God is the giver and the land is the gift. And that's how the two are connected. Um, the trouble is, sitting in Bristol in the 21st century, it's, it's easy to overlook the scale of that gift and just how significant that gift was. Um, we need to, to understand that um, this was an agrarian world. The world of Abraham and Moses was an agrarian society. Basically, everyone was a farmer. Um, and because everyone was a farmer, a nation's land was the nation's economy. Um, if you think of the Joseph story, a couple of years of famine could crush a nation. Um, and therefore the kind of land that your nation occupied shaped your destiny as a nation. The, the land was the economy. If you lived in good land, then you were more likely to survive as a nation and to prosper as a nation. If, you, if your land was desert or mountain, it would be much tougher. So what kind of land does God give his people Israel? It really was the best. Um, in, it, that, in that promise to Moses, it, God describes it as a land flowing with milk and honey. And it really was and is. Um, you have the fertile crescent that stretches from Babylon in the east through to the Mediterranean in the west, kind of like a, an N shape. Um, and that was the rich agricultural land. And, and Israel, or Palestine, is the western end of that fertile crescent. If you look at a, a satellite picture of that territory taken in spring, what you'll see is that most of the picture is brown. Most of that land, we know what the Middle East looks like. Most of that land is, is rocky, it's hard, it's, it's desert, it's brown. 
But, it, but that satellite picture, you'll see a, a green crescent. Um, and particularly at the western end, it's, it's rich and it's lush. On, on either side of the River Jordan, you have rich agricultural land. Um, it was the best real estate in the world. There was, there was a reason why the Canaanites were extremely reluctant to be displaced by the Israelites. There was a reason why the Philistines, who were, from, who were outsiders, they were from the West, there was a reason why they wanted it. And they thought they had a chance of taking it from, from the Israelites. And so on and so on. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, why did they all want this territory? Because it was the best. And the extraordinary thing was who ended up having it? Whose land did it become? Israel's of all people. Who was Israel? They were a bunch of nomads. You know, they were just a collection of tribes who'd spent 400 years in slavery and then after that wandered around the desert in circles for 40 years. How come that people, of all people, ended up in possession of the best land in, in the Middle East? Um, but it wasn't just about the national picture. If you were a typical Israelite in David's reign, you weren't just looking at God's gift of the land as God's gift to us as a nation. It was, it was more personal than that. Um, have you ever read the, done one of those Bible in a year reading plans? Um, and you get to Numbers 26. And it's interminable. You, and you've got to wade through chapter after chapter of tribes and clans. And, you know, by, they're all named individually. The, the families, the clans, the tribes. And, and God speaks and, and, and outlines that each of these named families must be given a plot of land. And then... And the same thing happens in chapter 34, and you think, oh, well, this again, why do I have... To? And if, if you're like me, you skip over it. Um, and then you read the book of Joshua, and they arrive in the land, and it's the same all over again. But this time, rather than God instructing them to do it, the book of Joshua records in seven painfully long chapters how Joshua and the people carried out God's instruction. And it talks about who these families were, who these clans were, and which land they ended up with. And it's painful. But there's a really important point, which is that if you're that Israelite sitting on your plot of land, it's not just that God has given us as a nation this great territory. God has given me and my family personally this particular plot of land. The land I work every day is a gift of God. Um, and the point is that was completely different from all of Israel's neighbours. Um, the ancient Near East at that time was a collection of city-states. And the city-states were ruled but also owned by kings. Uh, and they were, they were more like local warlords than, than King Charles. Um, but there were, there were these royal families of city-states and they owned the territory. So if you were a farmer in one of these city-states, you were a tenant farmer. You had no land security. It could be bought and sold or taken away from you by the royal family at any time. But that's how Israel was completely different. If you were an Israelite peasant farmer um, in the tribe of Benjamin, in a, on a plot of land near Bethel, then your land was given to you personally by God. And, and more than that, he'd instituted laws to make sure that it stayed that way, that you couldn't just buy and sell that land and pass it on to someone else. So people couldn't acquire land holdings, which meant that other people went into a kind of land debt or land servitude. Um, so this land is a gift to me and my family. And it's important to understand how that um, affected everything in someone's daily life. Um, pretty much from the, from the moment you woke up in the morning to the moment you went to bed, you had an opportunity to think theologically 
about your life, about everything in your life. If you think about it, if, if you're a farmer, your work is with the land, in the land. So your job is a gift of God. Your produce, your income, is a gift of God. Uh, you live on your land, so your home is a gift of God. Um, if you've got a home and an income, you have the opportunity to have a family and children and a future. So everything, wherever you turn, whatever you're doing throughout your working day, whether you're at work in the fields or at home with your family in the evening, everything is a reminder of God. Everything is impregnated with an understanding of God. You can think theologically about the stuff of your life. Um, or at least there's an opportunity to. If you choose to, there's, there's stuff there that you can, you can, uh, you can make your faith into uh, the stuff of your daily life. And of course, if you're thinking that way, you begin to ask yourself all so- and answer all sorts of questions. Who is God? What's he like? Well, he's, he's great. Because he, he has given us this, he is the one who chose to give us this land. But he's also good. He's a giver. It's also an opportunity to think about me. Um, who am I? I'm, I'm dependent on him. But more than that, he has chosen me. He has chosen me to give me this land. Why? Because he loves me. So everything in my life, my, my work, my home, my family, my future, speaks to me of my faith. It speaks to me about who God is and my relationship to him. So that's one thing. <clears throat> land is a gift. Secondly, land is a wonderful gift, but it's also a really strange gift. Uh, it's not a gift like we understand a gift. Uh, because there are all sorts of strings attached. Now, let's say Alice uh, was without a car and she needed a car and I had two cars. And I said, Alice, I'm going to give you my car. That's great. That's a gift. And it's a generous gift. And I hope you appreciate it, Alice. Absolutely. But let's suppose that happened. And then after a fortnight, I said, Alice... um, I have a neighbour who needs to get to Waitrose every day, every week for her weekly shop. So I'd like you to uh, to take her to Waitrose and take her home again, using the car I've given you. You think, okay, that's it's a bit of an imposition, but he has given me a car, so okay, that's reasonable. Um, and then a fortnight later, I said, Alice, I I couldn't help noticing that you you. Um, this car I gave you, you, you crossed the Severn Bridge and you drove it in Wales. <laughs> and I'd like you not to do that again, please. Um, at that point, you might say, hang on a minute, whose car is this? Did you give it to me or not? Who does this car belong to? Is it a gift or isn't it a gift? Is it my car? Is it your car? But that's exactly what the situation was with God giving the land to Israel. There were all sorts of obligations. There were all sorts of strings attached. Um, and in fact, you know, if you ask that question, well, who, now that God has given the land to Israel, who does the land belong to? The picture in the Old Testament is really mixed. In some places, it's clear that Israel is the owner of, it's their land, it's for them to enjoy. But let's look at Leviticus 25, verse 23. Uh, and again, Chris, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to ask you to read it out. <clears throat> the land must not be sold permanently, because the land is mine, and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. <laughs> so, in, <clears throat> in comparison with God, with um God's ownership of the land, Israel's ownership of the land is like being a tenant farmer. So yes, it's Israel's land, but even more so, it's still God's land. So hang on, is it owned by Israel? Yes. Is it owned by God? Yes, even more so. Welcome to the Old Testament. That's how it works. So how how are we to understand that? Because this is a strange gift. 
a gift that you that it still ends up being ultimately owned by the giver. Um, I think there are a couple of ways of, of thinking about it. The first is uh, to understand that the, the gift of the land is part of this treaty between Israel and God called the covenant. It's part of a... Um, uh, so in, in the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, nations and kings made treaties with one another, an understanding with one another, that was ruled, that was governed by a covenant, this, this kind of legal understanding of, of how they were going to relate to one another. And these covenants included blessings. So if, uh, if we form this alliance as two nations, these are the blessings that you will get through our relationship. But these are your obligations. If the relationship is going to go on, you will get these blessings, but you also are obliged to do this, this and this, was how it worked. And Israel had a covenant with God. There were all sorts of blessings, and the biggest blessing of all was the land. And yet there were obligations that went with it. <clears throat> but I think there's another picture that we also get in the Old Testament, which is the idea of an inheritance. In many different places, the land is described as Israel's inheritance. Now, what's an inheritance? An inheritance is something that belongs to you, but it belongs to you by virtue of a relationship. If you join the family, then you share in the inheritance. Um, and, but in, in this way, the, the gift is entirely connected with the relationship. It's impossible to separate the ownership of the land from the relationship with the person who ultimately owns the land. You, you get the land by, by being part of this relationship. And you can't walk away from the relationship without walking away from the land, as Israel discovered. Um, so again... The, the relationship with God, the relationship with the land, really were inseparable. They were two parts of the same thing. Um, so we're, we're digging into this relationship between God and the land, how, how relating to God affects our relationship with the land. There's one more thing I want to, um, to look at. Um, and it's the thing that struck me most as I was, I was preparing this. Um, what I, what I found I was really thinking about was how the promise of the land worked in the story of Israel. Um, when we looked at the overview of the, the promise of the land and how it was fulfilled, we saw everything that was involved in fulfilling that promise over hundreds of years. Um, and I came to the conclusion that there's a real value and a real power and purpose in a promise that's not yet fulfilled. Um, <clears throat> I don't mean to be rude, but I think a lot of Christians have a kind of Argos catalogue approach to God's promises. Um, you know, you, you go to Argos, and what you do is you, you look up in the book and you find something you want. And then you go to the, you fill in the little uh, form, and you go to the, to the cashier, and you pay your money, and then what they do is they give you a ticket. And the ticket shows that this thing that you want from the catalogue is bought and paid for. But what you then need to do is you need to go and claim it. And so you go to the counter in front of the big storage area with your ticket, and you, you present them your ticket, and you expect to have this thing, you know, what, uh, this barbecue set that you, you've ordered from Argos and paid for. You expect to be given it within about five minutes. And if you're waiting ten minutes, you're thinking, well, this, isn't, this is a bit disappointing. You know, something's gone wrong with this process. And I'm struck by how often Christians talk in this kind of language. You know, it, it's, it's promised in the Bible. All you need to do is claim it. And it'll be delivered. Um, and... I just noticed that when you read the story of Israel and what was involved in the fulfillment of these promises, it's really not like that. Has it ever struck you as strange that, that God promises Abraham a land, 
And the next thing, his family spent 450 years in Egypt in slavery. God repeats this promise to Moses. He, re- he, re- he kind of reiterates the promise. And, and they then spend 40 years wandering around the desert in circles. Now, why is that? Does that? Doesn't that strike you as strange? Has God promised this promise or not? Um, and then again, they enter the land and it's just slow, frustrating progress. And eventually the loss of this thing that was promised. And the question is, is it meant to be like that? Is that how it's meant to work? And I think that's a rich question, because you could say from, from one point of view, no, it's not. You know, if, if Israel in the desert had been faithful, if they hadn't worshipped the golden calf, if they um, had believed Moses, if they, you know, the first time they attempted to enter the land was very shortly after Mount Sinai. Do you remember they sent the spies out? But they got cold feet. They, they, they could have had the land then, but they got cold feet. They didn't trust God. And so they ended up going around in circles for 40 years until that generation had all died out. And so from one point of view, no, it's not meant to be like that. They, they, the promise could have been filled, fulfilled much earlier. But on the other hand, Israel were just flawed human beings like us. So you can say, well, in theory, it wasn't meant, meant to be like that. If, if they trusted Moses, they could have wandered from Sinai to the River Jordan in a matter of weeks and not 40 years. So we know it, it wasn't meant, like, meant to be like that. But in practice, knowing human beings and the way it worked, the way it worked was um, the promise created the opportunity for a relationship to be built. Um, if you think about it, as soon as um, God made those promises to Abraham and Moses, it set up a set of questions. Will this be fulfilled? How will it be fulfilled? When will it be fulfilled? Um, it set up all sorts of questions about God. Can God deliver? Will God deliver? Is he trustworthy? Is he dependable? It also set up an enormous number of questions about the people. Will they be faithful? Will they trust him? What are they like? What what is God like? What are the people like? These were the questions that were set up by that promise. Um, And it seems to me that that the process of asking and then answering those questions, which is what Israel went through in history, was the process of forging a relationship. The relationship was built as a result of wrestling with that unfulfilled promise and seeing it gradually being fulfilled, but with lots of twists and turns on the way. Um, If you have an Argos transaction understanding, all you're interested in is the thing, is the barbecue set, is the land. The whole purpose is to get the thing that's promised. But I would suggest there's another way of looking at it, which is to see it, see it as a process. And the process of the promise being fulfilled with all its twists and turns is a process that's incredibly valuable. If what you're actually interested in is not so much the thing that's promised, but the relationship with the giver, the relationship with the promiser. Um, there's another way of understanding it, which is as a story. Um, every relationship is intertwined with a story. If I think about my, my relationship with Emma, um, it's, it's impossible to separate my relationship with Emma and the understanding we have together and the way we are together, the way we communicate together. It's impossible to separate from that, from the story of our lives together as we look back. At all our shared experiences, the decisions we've made, the problems we've faced, the, the, the way we've resolved those, those problems and answered those questions. The result of all that is the relationship that we have today. Um, and so, again, the, it's the promise of the land 
And the story of how that promise is fulfilled, with all of its twists and turns, that is the thing that forges the relationship between God and his people. And I'd suggest that the relationship is more important than the thing that's promised, is more important than the land. Does that also apply to us? When we think about the promises in the, the New Testament, um, the promises of God's provision uh, to feed us, to clothe us, the promises to answer our prayers, uh, whatever you ask in my name I will do for you. When we claim those things, does the same apply to us? That actually it's more about the story of how those, those things are fulfilled? I think that's a rich question and one that's worth thinking about. Um, so, in summary, what, what we've done is look at the link between our relationship with God and the relationship with the land, or the, how that worked in the Old Testament. We've, we've dived into that to just begin to tease out how this, this theme of land works in the Old Testament and give you a flavour. But as I say, it's just a flavour. There are all sorts of different ways of looking at it. Um, as an aside, for example, in Deuteronomy, it suggests that the kind of the performance of the land is a measuring gauge uh, of Israel's relationship with God and the keeping the covenant. You know, if you, if you're faithful, if you keep the covenant, then the harvest will be good. The land will reward you. If not, then you, you'll, the land will not be so friendly towards you. Now, how do we read that? And how do we understand that applying to our lives? Because that sounds awfully like a prosperity gospel. So is it true or is it not true? How we could spend hours looking at that. So this is a rich, rich, complex question. Um, but finally, how does any of this apply to us? Um, well, first of all, if this is the Old Testament's worldview, this triangular picture, how... What's the New Testament worldview? What's the New Testament's understanding, if we were to look at it in similar terms? Because the thing is that the writers of the New Testament, they inherited this Old Testament worldview, this Old Testament triangular picture, those, that sense of priorities. That was what most of them were raised with. So that's the way they looked at the world. But... Their situation was vastly different from the situation of Israel in the land. Think, just think about the early church. What Typically, what did the early church look like? The early church lived in cities, not in the land. Just because of the nature of Paul's missionary journey and the, and the other missionaries who went out from Jerusalem. where They went east and west. Where did they go? They went along the main trading routes in the Greco-Roman Empire. And so they went to the main trading cities. They went to places like Corinth and Philippi. Now, that was not an agrarian economy. That was different. Um, what were the early church? The early churches were house churches. So where did they meet? They tended to meet in the biggest house that was owned by a member of the church. So, for example, if you go to, if you read in Acts about Paul's visit to Philippi, who does he latch on to? He finds Lydia. Who is Lydia? She is a dealer in fine cloth. She's a trader. And so she's got a big house. And Lydia and her husband, they become de facto the, the leaders of this new community in Philippi. And so what you might expect is that the writers of the New Testament, people like Luke, people like Paul, will take that, that framework, that triangular understanding, that worldview, and develop it. They'll adapt it to their new situation and then their new world. And the thing is, that's exactly what you find. Because what you find in the New Testament is that the theme of the land disappears overnight. It's just replaced. But what emerges very, in a very big way, a, a very a striking way, is the theme of money. Mm -hmm. Or slightly broader than that, 
economic resource. So it might be money, it might be possessions, it might be uh, your capacity to earn. But what the New Testament's very interested in is your economic resource and your money. But the thing that really strikes me is how the way the Old Testament treats the land is echoed in so many different ways by the way the New Testament treats money. Fundamentally, God is the giver. How often does Paul uh, um, encourage us to be thankful, encourage his his hearers to be thankful for for the stuff in their lives? Why? Well, because God is still the giver. The, The stuff in our lives is a gift of God. But again, it's a strange gift. There are all sorts of obligations. Um, who owns it? Well, we have this, this idea of stewardship. Yes, it's our money, but ultimately it's still God's money. It's, it's remarkable how the same themes are a, an echo from the Old Testament, just reflecting the new situation that the people of God find themselves in. And, and particularly, once again, just like in the law, a concern for the poor. A concern that those who have pay attention to the needs of those who have not. But this time, instead of not harvesting to the, to the edge of the field and leaving some gleanings for the poor to come along and harvest for themselves, now it's about looking at, it's still looking after the widow, the fatherless, uh, the poor. So that's the New Testament's view. But we find it really hard. I would suggest. And the, the trouble uh, for us in the 21st century is that's not our worldview. That's not the worldview of the world around us because we live in a secular age. Now, what, what does that mean to say we're secular? The fundamental secular belief is that the material world, the earthy world, the, the stuff of our, our homes and our jobs, is nothing to do with the spiritual. So some secular people say there is no spiritual. It's all just material. But there are plenty of people who who might claim to be Christians or people of other faiths who say they're very spiritual. But the, the world of their daily lives, their jobs, their homes, their gardens, their, their clothing, their food, that is a, a spirit-free area. And so if we can have the next slide, I think, the one with the red cross in the middle. So it's like our world comes with this assumption that God or the spirit world has nothing to do with the material world, the world of our daily lives. Um, And so instead of this integrated picture that you get in the Old Testament, that these, these three dimensions all interrelate and affect one another, we compartmentalize our lives. And we're quite com- it's remarkable how comfortable we are to go to work, to buy a house, to raise a family, to eat, to clothe ourselves, to drive a car, and see that stuff as unrelated to our relationship with God, separate from our relationship with God. And the trouble is, I think that's... That's a big mistake. Um, I think that's, that is neither the view of the Old Testament, but nor is it the view of the New Testament. Um, that God is just as present and God is just as interested and is just as much a, a giver in our everyday life, our life here and now in the material world, as he is interested in our spiritual lives. Um, Secular people tend to see the spiritual as spiritual, private, and future. It's all about what might happen to me on a spiritual spiritual plane at some point in the future. It's unrelated to my the, the stuff of my life today, and it's unrelated to my, my relationship with other people. And the trouble is that that results in a very thin, two-dimensional faith. It's a compartmentalised faith that doesn't affect our whole lives. 
and it's not much of a resource to draw on. If you're a secular Christian, how do you know that God loves you? Often, it's extraordinary how, how often it depends on feelings. But it's not a surprise because that's all you're left with. Um, and it, but if you compare that to our peasant farmer in Israel, everything in his daily life spoke to him about God. Everything in his daily life um, was a testimony to God, to who God was, and fed his experience of God, fed the, the, his relationship with God. So he had that, that anchor, that stability. That, you know, times may be good, times may be bad, feelings may come and go, but his faith was rock solid. And I, I'm really, I'm convinced we need to rediscover that. If we, if we, I'm, 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 this is a sweeping statement. Obviously, we're, we're, uh, we, uh, we try and bring God into our lives, but I think there's so much to gain if we can do that more and more. Um, so finally, what it's meant for me is, I'm someone who, um, I wasn't raised a Christian, and I've always had a very sketchy relationship to saying grace. Um, I've always seen saying grace as a kind of traditional, meaningless um, ritual, uh, which is wrong with me, obviously. Um, but it's, it's tended to be the way I, I, I've had this kind of sniffy attitude towards Christians who say grace. Um, and and that, but, but I kind of now want to go the other way. I want to say grace, but make sure I really mean it. I want, in other words, I don't just want to say grace. I want to see the food I'm eating as a gift of God. Every time I eat and every time I drink. Um, the particular thing for me is my house. Um, uh, I bought this house, the house we live in, 24 years ago. Um, and I was in, in thinking about how I apply this stuff to my life. I remembered how I, I've always felt that my house is a gift of God. There was, there was something about the process of buying it where everything fell into place. I was expecting it to be a nightmare process and really difficult and drawn out. But I, I bought the first house I saw because it was exactly what I wanted. I was the first person to see it. I offered the asking price because it was what I wanted. And the whole deal was done in four weeks. And it, it always felt like more than just a house. It always, for some reason, I always associated that process with it being a gift of God. But it's funny how over 24 years I've kind of forgotten that. And it, it's now I just take it for granted. So what I've tried to do for the last couple of weeks is every time I walk through the front door is to thank God for my house. Mm -hmm. Just to try and begin to take small baby steps in bringing God more into the, the stuff of my everyday life. And I'm, I'm trying to do the same with work. So when, when I'm sitting on the bus, uh, going to work in the morning, again... Lord, thank you for this job. And you bring it to God. And you, and, and it's funny how if you do that, you kind of notice him th throughout the day, just in the stuff that happens, the incidents that happen, the conversations. You begin to see God um, inhabiting your work. So that's where I am. So if you want to join me on that journey, let's talk. Um, uh, what ideas do you have about how we can bring God into uh, our everyday lives and, and begin to rebuild this kind of triangular worldview? Um, and again, if you have any requests for the next one, then get in touch. Uh, that's it from me. That was absolutely fantastic. That was so rich and... Such an exciting vision of life, isn't it? Yeah, so, yeah, such a beautiful way to live. Mm. Feels so resonant and integrated and holistic. Yeah, so we're going to be, we're probably going to be connecting a bit more with our grace, aren't we? 
<laughs> do you say grace? Yeah, we do say grace, but sometimes it's, it's, it's a, like a sort of it's a, a starting pistol. It's permission to eat. <laughs> yeah. how, how quickly can we say it? To get through, um, yeah. we have particularly keen children. <laughs> which is understanding. Which yeah. is great, yeah. But that's a lovely. But it's half. Yeah. But it's also an appreciation of the rhythm of thanking God. Yeah. But I think you just sort of yeah. rekindled it. Yeah. And the why is yeah. the beauty that He really has given us that food. And he's given us. And it makes some of those other Jewish traditions, like yeah. putting the scriptures on their doorposts and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, much mm. more little boxes on their yeah. yeah. It yeah. kind of brings those things alive, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. And uh, yeah. these things can become empty and, and sort of you know habitual without having any heart and yeah. but equally we can flip the other way yeah yeah that's true yeah really I'm going to actually end with a prayer I'd love us to be Lord thank you that we are invited into an integrated life mm-hmm. where we can be aware of you and how good you are and how much you give us gifts all the time I thank you for Bill bringing that clarity to us and I, I pray that we all grow in that awareness and gratitude for every single aspect of our life, our food, our shelter, our, our going to work, or going to community, connecting with other people, our clothes. And as we do that, just grow that real intimacy with you. Because as Bill said, the whole thing is about relationship with you. And I think if as we fan into flame this gratitude, I think we will grow in that intimacy with you. So I bless us to be able to mature in this area. Amen. 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 Thanks, Bill. Thank you. That was inspiring. You're welcome.